I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with futures fighting for gains as investors look to close out what's been the worst month for stocks this year. Also, helping the bulls this morning, new comments from Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic. We will tell you why he says inflation may already be very close to the Fed's 2% target. And speaking of the Fed, investors are bracing for another key piece of economic data, what is known as the central bank's preferred gauge of inflation. We have the Milken chief economist, Bill Lee. He's here with a preview. Plus, a record-breaking quarter from European banking giant UBS and exclusive comments from its CEO. And then later in the show, proving doubters wrong as Salesforce, it blows past estimates. It is Thursday, August the 31st, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start this day. As always, we kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures on this final day of August trading with stocks riding a four-session win streak. Here's what we got to point out to you right now. Look at the Dow futures looking like they'll open up about 130 points higher. Remember, we said Futures are fighting for gains, but clearly we're not talking about the Dow. The S&P and the Nasdaq fractionally higher right now, but we will continue to watch the Dow all morning long. So helping with futures this morning, Salesforce shares jumping after topping second quarter estimates, also raising its current quarter guidance and its full year guidance, thanks in part to its decision to raise prices on key products for the first time in seven years. Taking a look at uh, shares of Salesforce this morning up over five and a half percent. Investors also looking ahead to today's personal income data. Economists expecting core PCE prices to come in at 4.2% year over year in July. That's just a tick, a scotch higher than June. You can see the two estimates right here, 4.2 previous, 4.1. So ahead of that, of course, we are checking the bond market right now, taking a look at yields. As always, we begin with the benchmark 10-year at 4.10. We've seen bond yields ease in recent days, partly due to GDP, that downward revision that we saw. We're also seeing the two-year note. That yield well below 5% right now at 4.86. We'll continue to watch throughout the morning. We're also looking at the energy market, specifically oil. As always, we begin with WTI, the U.S. benchmark at 81.91, moving a third of a percent higher. Brent crude at 86.04, fractionally higher. Natural gas just fractionally lower, basically flat for these last two. All right, the major averages riding a four-day winning streak, trimming their losses in the worst month for stocks in 2023. As we start this final trading day of August, take a look. The Dow's off 1.9% for the month of August. Its first loss in the past three months. The S&P down 1.6%. The NASDAQ down more than 2%. So both the S&P and the NASDAQ, they're both set to snap a five-month win streak. For more insight, let's bring in Matt Maley, Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tayback. Matt, good morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Frank. All right. So for the month, we're seeing declines. More recently, in the last few days, we're seeing a bit of a rally. Which one do you believe is going to carry momentum into September? I think we're going to see some more weakness as we move into September. I mean, October is generally, I'm sorry, August is uh, generally a tough month for the stock market, but September is the worst month for the stock market. And uh, the, the thing that concerns me the most is, is, is this level of interest rates. I mean, I think I think uh, Romaine Bostic, I'm sorry, that, that uh, Chairman Bostic, President Bostic, I should say, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, is, is, is correct that the, the Fed may not be uh, raising interest rates anymore. They may be done. Uh, the question for me, though, is that enough to really push the 
stock market a lot higher. Uh, and, and, and I question that because I think a lot of people are equating the end of, of, of uh, uh, rate hikes uh, with, uh, you know, easing or, or even the, uh, the end of rate hikes with the kind of uh, uh, monetary stimulus that we had, uh, you know, uh, in the 2020 and 2021. I just don't think that's the case. All right. Fair enough point. Um, one of the things that's really been pushing the market higher is also consumer discretionary spending. Um, that sector up over 30 percent year to date. Important to note that two stocks in there are Tesla and Amazon. So it's not necessarily what you may think when it comes to consumer discretionary spending. With the return of student loans, are you worried about that impact on that sector and the broader market? Yes, I mean because you know we, of course we had this whole thing with the, you know, the student loans as you just mentioned uh, coming home to roost and uh, are coming back uh, you know from from the. Uh, the, the hiatus they, they've been on for a while. Uh, but the big, you know, the, the biggest thing, of course, we have this uh, situation where, um, uh, you know, uh, credit card debt is at all time highs. Uh, we're starting to see a rise in delinquencies in, in, in credit cards and credit card payments, et cetera. It just shows that there are some cracks in, consu- in consumer spending. That doesn't mean it's the end of the world. But again, it goes back to this, this, this feeling that with valuations where they are and interest rates coming down, I'm sorry, with interest rates, uh, elevated, uh, you know, 15 year highs, uh, it's going to be tough for the stock market to, to push a lot higher as we move into this tough time frame, which, uh, you know, the September and October tends to provide. Well, I mean, Matt, you are right. The yields are coming down just a bit. So, of course, we're looking ahead to PCE today. Is this the big inflection point that it's been in previous months? Um, Do you believe that this will be either the nail in the coffin to, to pause or to hike? Is this it? I, th- I think it will be. Uh, but again, one thing we do have to remember, I think the most important thing investors have to remember, the Fed was always going to have to tighten whether inflation was a problem or not. I mean, the, they pushed in, in interest rates to incredibly artificially low levels in 2020 because we had a pandemic and the entire global economy had shut down. So therefore, they were always going to have to raise interest rates to a certain level, um, not as high as they'd had to right. do it. Uh, but my point is they're not going to come down as much, as much as people had thought, and that's going to create some headwinds. So wait, Matt, just, just to be clear, though, so you think this is the final decision to either pause or hike? Which one do you think this will be? I think that they're going to be I think they're going to pause and they're done. They're, they're going to done raising done raising rates. I just don't think it's going to be quite as bullish for the stock market as a lot of people think it will be. So it doesn't matter if PCE is higher than expected. If a PC is higher than expected, then they, they will hike even further, and that's going to cause that's going to have a big problem for the stock market. So I, I don't want to say it's a lose lose situation because I'm not calling for the end of the world here. Right. I just think the stock market's had a great run here uh, so far this year. You're getting five percent for cash. Why not raise a little bit in case we uh, do see a pullback? And if I'm wrong, you'll get paid to wait. Okay. And, and and again, it's not like I'm saying you should go to fifty percent cash or anything. Like that. Understood, Matt Maley. Great to see you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. All right, time now to get a quick check on this morning's top corporate stories. Our Savannah Hanau here with those. Savannah, good morning. Hi, Frank. Good Thursday morning to you. Atlanta Federal Reserve President Rafael Bostic says interest rates are high enough and policy is tight enough to bring inflation down to 2% over a, quote, reasonable time frame. And given the nature of housing inflation, underlying inflation may already be at or close to the Fed's target. Speaking in South Africa this morning, Bostic adds he does not favor easing anytime soon, but says policymakers should be cautious on more tightening and, quote, inflicting unnecessary economic pain. 
The White House is expanding export restrictions of certain high-end chips made by NVIDIA and AMD to countries beyond China, including those in the Middle East. In a filing this week, NVIDIA said the new regulations, which affects its A100 and H100 chips using AI, will not have an immediate material impact on results. And shares of companies in the cannabis space are also surging this morning. Let's take a look. Um, yeah, both up in the pre-market, all three up in pre-market. Now, this on a report that senior U.S. health officials are recommending the federal government ease restrictions on marijuana use, including reclassifying it as a Schedule Three drug, a downgrade from its current Schedule One status. That's the same as other substances like heroin, Frank. All right, Saman, and thank you very much. Saw a yeah. big surge in cannabis stocks yesterday. We'll have to watch the action. Yeah, today. we'll keep an eye on it today. All right. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, exclusive comments from the CEO of UBS after the bank's record-breaking quarter. Plus, after Adalia, a live report from South Carolina and a look at the damage left in its wake. And then later, gauging the real-world impact of President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, the live on the ground in one Midwest state asking, if $3.5 billion and 2,500 new jobs, is that enough to move the needle for the 2024 election? We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Taking a look at U.S. futures, you can see the Dow looks like it's up just about 100 points right now in the pre-market, a bit off of its highs right now. Uh, the S&P fractionally higher, the Nasdaq fractionally lower. Let's now see how Europe is shaping up as this trading day just gets underway. Our Juliana Tattlebaum is live in our London newsroom with much more. Juliana, good morning. Frank, good morning. Well, European investors are reacting to a mixed session in Asia, a mixed handover. As you can see here, we had the Shanghai Composite in mainland China and the Hong Kong market underperform. We got some fresh data out of the mainland, China's factory activity in August shrank for the fifth straight month, but at a slower pace than in July. Retail sales in August did see a market increase versus July, but overall, the picture in China remains quite downbeat. Over in Hong Kong, a lot of focus on the property sector continues. We saw uh, some swings in Country Garden, the troubled property name overnight after reporting a record loss. Now, European equity markets holding up a lot better than the overall Asian region. You've got green for the most part, although we have turned negative now in France. The CAC 40 now down below the flat line. Same picture for the FTSE 100. You've got the Swiss market performing pretty well, up 0.4%. UBS uh, trading at the top of that index, at the top of the stock 600, in fact, after uh, finally delivering their delayed earnings this morning and investors cheering what they heard. It's the euro that's in sharp focus, though. The euro is trading down by about half a percent versus the dollar. We got some fresh inflation data just moments ago. The euro area inflation rate for August, 5.3 percent year on year. That was stronger than expected. Steady in the month of July, but investors were looking for 5.1 percent. What does this mean? Well, the market is reading it as increasing the likelihood that the ECB hikes rates once again at their September 14th meeting. Right. Yeah. Inflation, a big story today on both sides of the pond. Juliana, great to see you as always. Thank you very much. All right, we're going to stick with Europe and news that Juliana had mentioned just a moment ago. Shares of UBS, they are surging this morning. The Swiss bank reporting its best ever quarterly profit in the second quarter. Credit Suisse benefiting from its takeover of, um, excuse me, UBS benefiting from, from its takeover of Credit Suisse. UBS also confirming it will fully integrate the local businesses of its former rival by next year. 
Our Jemana Bersetti is outside the bank's headquarters where she spoke with the UBS CEO. Jemana, good morning. That's right, Frank. Well, we're seeing a positive reaction in the stock price today. Investors are namely reassured by the fact that the bank's capital position is still pretty strong and that we're still seeing money come into their wealth management division. Remember, it was the scale and the speed of the outflows away from Credit Suisse, which sort of catapulted its decline in those final days. We also got a lot more, a lot more color about the strategic direction uh, for the combined entity going forwards. And this is part and parcel of UBS's decision to start with winding down of the investment bank, uh, essentially eliminating the infrastructure for the global markets business. I put that question to the CEO, Sergio Amati, about their decision to downsize the investment bank. Our analysis has proven that uh, the business model uh, was not viable any longer. Credit Suisse has excellent uh, people, uh, clients, uh, product capabilities, but uh, the business model was not uh, sustainable any longer and needs to be restructured. The business not viable anymore, he's saying, hence the decision to uh, continue along the lines of downsizing that investment banking unit. UBS also announced a $10 billion cost savings target, which is a little bit higher than what they had announced a couple of months ago. Before it was $8 billion. They've now upgraded that to $10 billion. And a big chunk of that is going to involve headcount reduction, Frank. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about headcount reduction, Jumana. Um, they obviously took on a lot of staff in that Credit Suisse takeover. Absolutely. And this is a big question for investors going forward because that $10 billion cost savings, essentially a big, bunk, a big chunk of it is going to come from a reduction in personnel, either voluntarily, redundancy or through natural attrition. So far, what we know is that 8,000 jobs have been lost in the second quarter. Uh, and today, UBS also announced that within Switzerland, 1,000 jobs will be lost within the Swiss bank. Another 2,000 also will be lost domestically. So that gets you to around 11,000. But analysts out there put the number as high as 30 to 35,000. So there is still a lot more job losses to be expected. There is a long road ahead. So even though investors are cheering on the results today, it's going to take years for this full integration to full, fully come into force and for them to see synergies from the two companies. Yeah, it's a story we'll continue to follow. Jumana, great to see you as always. Great reporting as always. Thank you very much. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, we have the bull case for insurance stocks in the wake of Hurricane Adalia and the likely billions of dollars in damage. A live report from South Carolina coming up next and a closer look at this key sector of the market when we return right here on Worldwide Exchange. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Millions of residents who were forced to evacuate, they're now returning home this morning in the wake of Hurricane Adalia. The historic Category 3 storm made landfall in Florida yesterday before moving through Georgia and the Carolinas. NBC's Wendy Wolfolk joins me now from Charleston, South Carolina, where the cleanup is just getting started. Wendy, good morning. Frank, good morning to you. Thankfully, the Adalia's rain bands are starting to taper off here in Charleston, but there is still a tropical storm warning up in North Carolina that while more than 350,000 customers in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina are waking up without power this morning. The first major hurricane to hit Florida's Big Bend region in more than a century. Idalia's storm surge exceeded expectations Wednesday morning, more than 10 feet in some places. I don't think anybody expected it to be this bad. 
weakening slightly to a Category 3 when making landfall. Billboards and buildings still no match for gusts up to 120 miles per hour. Nobody's going to get power for weeks. Leaving behind countless downed trees and ravaged structures, the storm quickly moved into Georgia and up the Carolina coast. Jason was trying to pull the door shut and he couldn't do it. He's a big guy. A tornado in Charleston turned this car upside down, injuring two people inside. While the low country is no stranger to flooding, the high tide, a supermoon, and just inches of a tropical storm surge can cause catastrophic destruction. There is, of course, a lot of debris to clean up, but we will get uh, working with that with the local communities to make sure that the roads are cleared and uh, people can go back uh, to their lives. After four states in 48 hours, Idalia leaves behind days, weeks, even months worth of damage to repair. Last night's high tide was a record making one. It was it topped over 9.2 feet. That's the fifth highest on Charleston's records. Now, once daylight arises here in the area, we'll get a much better perspective of the damage in the low country. Meantime, Hurricane Adalia, now tropical storm Adalia is going to make its way back into the sea, thankfully, Frank, later this afternoon. That's the latest here live in Charleston. I'm Wendy Woolfolk. Back to you. All right, Wendy, thank you very much. You stay safe. All right, one part of the market we are keeping a close eye on after Adalia is the insurance business. The storm putting several major companies to test within Florida's already expensive insurance landscape. So experts say the industry can likely emerge from this crisis mostly unscathed, at least in the short term. However, consumers will likely have to pay higher insurance premiums. For much more on this, let's bring in Paul Newsom, senior insurance research analyst at Piper Sandler. Paul, good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right, so, Paul, I just want to be clear. The, the main concern when it comes to hurricanes, severe weather is, you know, people, safety, their homes, things like that. But there certainly is an investor impact to this as well. As well. Give us a sense. How are insurance stocks impacted when we see a hurricane or another severe weather event? Uh, and obviously, it's, there's a cost. Uh, but, you know, it's important to remember that these companies essentially expect to have a, a hurricane or two every year. So it's usually within expectations of what they're going to have for every year. And then the net effect is a little bit of increase in de demand as customers recognize that they need the insurance after these events. And then uh, also a reminder to the companies themselves that they should be remain disciplined when it comes to underwriting. The net effect is usually a net positive from an economic perspective for the insurance companies, even though they're taking obviously a significant loss for the event itself. You know, Paul, I got to say, that's, that's honestly a bit surprising. We we're just looking at a, a few insurance stocks, AIG actually trading higher this morning. Uh, pretty interesting. So something else is pretty interesting is that you actually recommend dollar cost averaging into insurance stocks ahead of a storm. Explain this thesis. What's the benefit of dollar cost averaging before they have this kind of disruption? It really has to do with two things. One is that the companies typically, the stock prices typically go down in front of an insurance event of, of like this and then typically respond uh, because insurance investors, like every other stock investor, they don't like uh, they don't like uncertainty. And as the uncertainty goes down, you know, pardon me, as it increases, you see the stocks going down. As it as the event involves itself and you understand what's going to happen here, uh, the stocks typically rebound. You dollar cost average because hurricanes are unpredictable. 
You never know okay. what's going to happen. And so the only way to pick the bottom is to do it with a dollar cost averaging process. I just want to be clear. So you're, you're, you're basically buying the dip into the storm because the stocks go down right before the storm and then they kind of go back up to their previous level right afterwards. That's exactly right. Really interesting. Okay. One thing I want to talk to you about. So a year ago, Hurricane Ian had uh, caused an estimated $100 billion in damages. I know you sent us some estimates from other storms, but then you have to inflation adjust. This was just a year ago. So basically the same dollars over that period of time. Um, You say the insurance companies, they prepare for these events. But when you see this kind of damage and we're seeing more and more of these big storms, how does that impact the premiums that consumers have to pay? And then long term, how does it impact the top and the bottom line of these insurance companies? But it, it's not a specific, you know, company or situation that ends up. But generally, see, you'll see higher prices following an event. You saw much higher reinsurance prices, for example, following Hurricane Ian. So, um, you know, it, the customers pay more after these events um, because um, insurers and reinsurers become much more disciplined and uh and essentially pass on the cost to the customers. But is it a long-term tailwind for the companies themselves? Does all this, these higher premiums, does it actually trickle down to the bottom line? It does. Uh, Eventually, it trickles down. It doesn't happen instantaneously, but over the course of the next year and a half, you'll see uh, rates increase, prices increase, and it will ultimately trickle down to the uh, insurance companies. Paul Newsom of Piper Sandler, great to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, straight ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. First, it was Ubisoft, now Microsoft, taking even more steps this morning to appease the regulators in Europe. We have the details ahead. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange will be back right after this. All right, it's about 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and there's a lot more ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is with Sill on Deck. Stocks riding a four-session win streak as Wall Street looks to end August on a high note. Dow futures are higher this morning. We're also looking ahead to a key inflation data point out this morning. A new comments from one Fed president that the rates are actually high enough. Plus, much more than yoga pants. What investors should be looking for when Lululemon reports its latest quarterly results later today. It is Thursday, August the 31st, 2023, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's get you ready for this day. We're going to pick up the half an hour, as we always do, with a check on U.S. stock futures. And look at this right here, the Dow, looking like it'll open up about 115 points higher right now. As we always say, it is early. The S&P fractionally higher, the Nasdaq fractionally lower at this hour. All right, big moment later today. The market's late August bounce could face a big test. The Fed's preferred gauge of inflation, we're talking PCE, that's out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. Month over month, consumer prices are forecast to rise another 0.02% in July, matching the increase in June. Same number. You see it right there. On an annual basis, the core PCE is expected to tick up just a scotch, 4.2 from 4.1 in June. You see the numbers. The core rate, which excludes food and energy, is viewed by the Fed as a better measure of inflation trends. Let's talk much more about this now with Bill Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute. Bill, good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me on. All right, let's just get right down to it, Bill. Do you agree with the estimate uh, for PCE? And if it goes up just a tick higher month over month, as, as the forecast suggests, what does that tell you about the path of inflation? It says that inflation really is on a downward trajectory, but the trend itself is pretty bumpy. And, and I think the Fed is expecting that. And, and um, as much as uh, uh, President Bostic has said that uh, he thinks things are tight enough, I think the 
consensus on the committee is one way they still are, are yet less certain about that. And I think Chair Powell is saying that, you know, we may need to tighten more if inflation st doesn't show a clear downward trend, especially a core inflation. Yeah, I think Chair Powell is definitely saying that, at least, you know, based on his comments following Jackson Hole. So let's look at the CME FedWatch earlier. It shows more than an 85 percent chance of a pause. We're about 20 days away from that September meeting. Is this PCE report, is this a, the big inflection point that you think the Fed's going to make its final decision on? Or are there other data points coming up that we should pay more attention to? It's certainly a very big piece of the puzzle, but we have another CPI reading coming up before the meeting, and that will tell us even more uh, whether the trend is intact going down or whether that bumpy trend may have some upward bias to it later on in the year, which I think many of us expect. So, so I think one of the things that we, the Fed has got to be is very cautious. Also, as much as labor market is easing up, the revisions in GDP are still showing we've got a pretty strong economy out there. You know, we always say that PC is the preferred gauge. So then how could CPI change their mind? Um, CPI is mostly focused on urban areas. PCE is generally everybody. So if PC is the preferred gauge, shouldn't this be the, the one that really makes them or helps them make the decision? You would think that, but the Fed itself is just always saying we don't allow any one point to influence all of our decisions. Yes, this is a very big decision maker uh, and, and, and it's a very important piece of the puzzle. But uh, the CPI is a fixed weight basket. It gives you a sense of where it is that prices are actually going up. The PCE allows people to adjust their spending habits so that they react by spending less on the more expensive stuff and more on the less expensive stuff. So yesterday we saw a downward revision of uh, GDP. I want to bounce a note from Morgan Stanley off of you related to consumer spending, especially consumer discretionary spending. So this note from Morgan Stanley is about, really about student loans. So it says in part, about half of student loan borrowers are likely to resume payments in Q4 with 70% of the payments coming at the expense of spending elsewhere. The drag on discretionary spending will stretch into the first quarter of 2024. How do you see the resumption of student loans impacting the broader economy? Of course, we're right on the verge of back to school right now. You know, the student loan is always a, a story that people are telling as one of the drags on the economy. But and, and this is a very uh, much of a spending portion of the population because it's the young people who are doing a lot of the spending. Uh, but I think the one thing that we have been surprised by over and over again is how strong overall inflation is, uh, overall consumption is. And, and much of that spending is taking place by the higher income consumers. Uh, and so I think as much as student loans are drag on a lot of people, um, the upper end still seems to have a lot of buying power. And, and, and those guys are the ones that the Fed is most concerned about. All right. Bill Lee, always great to see you. Bill Lee, chief economist at the Milken Institute. Thank you for your time and for your insight. Thanks for having me. All right. We're also watching shares of Lululemon this morning as the company gets set to report its results after the close today. The stock's up more than 17 percent this year, outperforming the XRT retail ETF and competitors like Nike and Under Armour. Revenue and profit are expected to both grow by 16 percent for this quarter, for the full year, Lululemon is also guiding for EPS to come in between 11.74 and 11.94 a share, as compared to the estimate of 11.93. Three areas to watch in this report: same-store sales, gross margins, and inventory. Following a 24% increase in inventory last quarter, joining me now with his expectations is Brian Nagel, senior equity research analyst in retail hardlines and broadlines at Oppenheimer. Brian, good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me. So let's go. What's your, your rating, your price target for Lululemon? And like a lot of other areas in retail, does Lululemon have an issue with too much inventory? Yeah. So look, we're, we're, we're favorable on Lululemon. We have been for a while. So we have an outperform rating. We have a $400 price target, which still suggests some you know, decent upside from current levels. To get to your question, uh, yeah, the, look, the market, what we've seen over the last you know, now several weeks, I'd say, is that market sentiment 
towards this athleisure and sporty goods space, including Lululemon, has really soured. Now, in my view, and what we're telling our clients is, look, we think this is an opportunity. Because, you know, and I think, I think as we'll see from Lululemon, when the company reports its quarterly results after the close night, I think trends at Lululemon are actually tracking quite well. And I think that's going to, you know, that should generally be an upside, an upside surprise to this, uh, like I said, rather soured market sentiment. So I'm looking at the estimates right now for Lululemon's same-store sales, a key metric for any retail store. Um, the forecast is for same-store sales to increase by 12%. So you're saying sentiment about athleisure is souring. So is Lululemon just completely bucking the trend? Is there something that's keeping people going back to the store and buying more? Because it's also pretty expensive when it comes to athleisure. Yeah, so look, I, I think the answer to the question is yes. I mean, Lululemon has been performing better, better than other athleisure brands. I can talk about that more in a second. But I also think the big trend here, and I talked about this with Nike as well, is that you've had this shift. We're dressing more casually as a society, right? So these, these, these leading athletic brands like Lululemon are taking market share from elsewhere in the clothing, in the clothing space. You know, people are dressing more casually. But within athletic wear, you know, Lululemon has really been a top performer. This is still a relatively small brand. You know, it's much smaller than Nike, much smaller than other brands. So, you know, from that standpoint, there's, there's, there's more runway, so to say, for Lululemon to continue to grow, you know, both in the domestic market in the United States as well as overseas. You know, Brian, when you say people are dressing more casually, I think you're really talking about yourself. I know we were talking. You say you wear the pants with just a jacket to work all the time. We have a lot of people here at CNBC that do the same thing. I think they wear the ABC pants to work and just put a blazer over it. So you're right. That's a, that's a pretty broad trend. The other thing I want to talk to you about is e-commerce. So right now, Lululemon gets about 40 percent of sales from e-commerce direct to consumer. Um, how does that what does that mean long term for this brand and this company as we see a lot of softness when it comes to people going into retail stores and a lot of spend going from goods to services? Well, look, on the e-commerce side, I mean, again, one of the advantages for Lululemon and the company's still relatively young business model is that they're, they've been largely developing from scratch. Okay, so as you look at Nike, and again, we're big fans of Nike as well, but one of the challenges for Nike over the past, you know, I'd say now few, several years even, has been rationalizing their wholesale base and driving more sales direct to consumer. Lululemon, on the other hand, is for the most part a direct-to-consumer brand. You know, they have their websites, they have their stores, they do a little bit of wholesale, not much. But again, that's allowed them not to have to do that dismantling, if you will. So I think that's a big positive just from a you know just from an overall you know uh, you know business model standpoint. Again, direct-to-consumer. The real key is that a company like Lululemon can control its brand better, can control its pricing better, connects better directly with its consumers. Now, again, I think as I think about this, how this evolves and how Lululemon continues to grow from here, that's a big positive. All right. Brian Nagel, great to see you. Price target of 400 on Lululemon. We'll have to watch for that report after the bell. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, we are gauging the real world impact of President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. We're live on the ground in one Midwest state asking if $3.5 billion and 2,500 new jobs. Is that enough to move the needle for the 2024 election? Our own Emily Wilkins is live in Marshall, Michigan. That's coming up next. But first, as we head to break, some of your morning's big money movers. Shares of Okta surging after the company's third quarter forecast came in above analyst expectations. Okta attributing the earnings beat to resilient demand for its identity authentication services, along with expansion into the Asia-Pacific region as more businesses ramp up security measures against rising cyber attacks. Those shares up almost 11%. A very different story for shares of Five Below. Falling in the pre-market on a weak earnings outlook, the company says it expects gross margin leverage 
due to lower freight costs, but says it's conducting inventory investigations due to shrink, which by below warrants will significantly impact the current quarter compared to last year. Those shares down more than 5%. And our big stock story this morning, we're talking Salesforce, of course. Shares are popping this morning following a second quarter beat and a boost to the company's full-year outlook. Revenue increasing by 11% from a year ago due to higher prices for some of its products. As Salesforce benefits from optimism over AI. Still, management is cautious around the uncertain economic situation and its impact on sales cycles and the approval of deals. Looking at shares of Salesforce right now, uh, up just over 5%. Uh, futures right now, at least when it comes to the Dow, uh, moving higher this morning, something we're going to continue to watch. Stick with us. we got much more Worldwide Exchange coming up after this. If things stay strong, it's going to be probably harder to bring down inflation. But if things start to weaken, obviously creates more of a recession risk, which, by the way, we don't think it's hard to call right, right now what's going to happen. That obviously start to tamper down inflation, obviously allow the Fed to, to take more aggressive actions cutting, which is not a good thing. But that is literally, when you say, like, what is one of the most important things we're watching? That's one of the most important things we're watching is when cumulative excess savings going negative sometime in the fourth quarter. All right, that was just part of Sixth Street co-founder and CEO Alan Waxman's first-ever television interview as part of the latest Delivering Alpha newsletter. His firm has exploded in growth in recent years, with $74 billion invested in everything from direct lending and sports insurance to real estate. Scan the code on your screen and subscribe for more, or visit cnbc.com slash newsletter. All right, it's time now for your global briefing. Uh, this morning, we begin with some news related to Microsoft. Microsoft says it plans to unbundle its team software from Microsoft Office in Europe. The move is an effort to address concerns raised by EU antitrust regulators who are concerned. Teams bundling could amount to an abuse of the company's dominant market position. And take a look at shares of UBS this morning. They're surging. The bank reporting its biggest ever quarterly profit in the second quarter as a result of its takeover of Credit Suisse. UBS also confirming it will fully integrate the local businesses of its former rival by next year. And China says its manufacturing sector contracted in August for the fifth month in a row as it deals with weak consumption, low factory output, and a property sector liquidity crisis. All right, now we're turning our attention to a new CNB series called The Money Trail, where we look at the $2 trillion in government spending planned over the next decade through legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, and the infrastructure law, which aims to boost U.S. innovation and competitiveness. Today, we head to Michigan for a look at the real-world impact in one small town. Our Emily Wilkins joins us now from Marshall, Michigan, with much more. Emily, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Well, when Biden signed a major tax, health, and environmental law last year, he anticipated it would lead to developments in places like Marshall, Michigan, where Ford is building a 3.5 billion electric vehicle factory that's expected to create 2,500 jobs. Ford did consider other sites in other countries for the factory, but officials said the company decided to stay in the U.S. thanks to new credits, tax credits in the law. At a coffee shop downtown, Derek Allen, who heads a local nonprofit, said the factory will have a huge impact on the area. Ford, a Michigan company, is coming to Marshall. Um, is just so exciting that jobs that have for so many years left the state and left the country are actually coming back home um, was huge for this community. Early construction has already started on the site, just a short drive from Marshall's downtown. And although it won't be done until 2026, it will play a role in Michigan's Senate race. 
Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, the top Democratic candidate, said drawing a line from new development to the Biden-backed law is important but tricky. Well, I've sat with, you know, people in my own town who have said, well, we're so thrilled to see all the, this new development. Um, thank God President Trump brought us that. And I said, that wasn't Trump. Trump talked about it, but he didn't do it. Biden did it. Michael Hoover, a Republican Senate candidate, opposes the law, saying the government shouldn't be picking which businesses thrive. This is not, quote unquote, an investment. This is taxes. This is taking taxes out of the working class and telling them that you're going to hand that money over to Ford Motor Company so they can build a plant and they can make billions of dollars. This is not how the country is meant to work. Michigan's Senate race could be one of the most competitive in the country and help determine who controls Congress after 2024. Frank? So, Emily, you're right in central Michigan. A lot of people don't know this. I used to live in Michigan. It's like two different sides of the state if you're on the, the west side Same of it or here. the east That's side. That's such a small coincidence. Yes, yeah, you know, small world, Emily. So a lot of different uh, divergent politics from where Detroit is over on the other side where Grand Rapids is, two very different sides. Will any of this, will this move the needle statewide in 2024? I mean, it's a great question. If you look around, one of the things that really struck me as I've spoke with folks in Marshall is that there's a lot of feelings about this development coming. Yes, there's an acknowledgement that there is a need for jobs. There's a need for economic development. But at the same time, a number of people have concerns about what kind of impacts bringing a big factory into a quaint small town is going to wind up doing for the town and for the environment and just for the future of Marshall. So I think it really does remain to be seen how this shakes out politically. All right, our Emily Wilkins, new series, The Money Trail. We'll be looking out for these stories. Big build up to the 2024 election. Thank you very much. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, we have the one word that every investor needs to know today. But first, looking past the broader market and the S&P, which is roughly where it was two years ago today, the hot sector of the market, my next guest says, you should be buying into right now. We'll have much more on that when we come back. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Live look right now in New York. We're still waiting for the sun to come up. Over there in London, the trading day already underway. Hong Kong, pretty much the end of the day. And same story in D.C. as in New York. Uh, still waiting for the sun to come up. Can't even see the Capitol. I believe that's the shot we have right there. All right, time now for what we like to call your WEX wrap-up. We begin with Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic saying that interest rates are high enough and policy is tight enough to bring inflation down to 2% over a, quote, reasonable time frame. He adds policymakers should be cautious on more tightening and, quote, inflicting unnecessary economic pain. Bostic adds, however, he is not in favor of easing anytime soon. Federal prosecutors are reportedly investigating Tesla's use of company funds to work on a secret project internally described as a glass house for CEO Elon Musk. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York is looking for information about how much Tesla has spent on the project and any personal benefits paid to Musk directly. The White House is expanding export restrictions of certain high-end chips made by NVIDIA and AMD to countries beyond China, including those in the Middle East. AMD and NVIDIA are indicating these new curbs will not have an immediate material impact on earnings, taking a look at shares of both down fractionally in the pre-market. Shares of companies in the cannabis space, they're surging this morning on reports. Senior U.S. health officials are recommending the federal government ease restrictions on marijuana use, including reclassifying it as a Schedule Three drug, 
a downgrade from its current Schedule 1 status, the same Schedule 1 as other substances like heroin. And shares of Shopify are also popping in the pre-market. The company announcing an enhanced collaboration with Amazon to use its Buy Now with Prime service on its site. And shares of online pet retailer Chewy, they're lower ahead of the open. The company out with its latest earnings report, telling investors it's expecting suppliers to cut prices in the face of more price-conscious and, quote, discerning consumers. Shares of Chewy right now down 5%. Here's what to watch today. Initial jobless claims, core PCE. Consumer spending and Chicago PMI, they are all out this morning. We're also on the lookout for earnings from Campbell Soup, Dollar General, chipmaker Broadcom, Dell Technologies, and we were talking about it earlier in the show, Lululemon. Boston Fed President Susan Collins will be speaking in just a few hours at 9 a.m. Eastern as well. All right, markets are gearing up for the final trading day of the month. We're looking at futures right now. Dow off of its highs of this morning, but still up just around 100 points. The S&P fractionally higher, the Nasdaq lower. Salesforce and its earnings beat, accounting for nearly all the pre-market gains in the Dow, as we mentioned, up 100 points. The major averages coming off their fourth straight positive session yesterday. With the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq now all on track to end the month, down between 1.5 and 2.5 percent. Let's get more insight into the trading day ahead and what it could mean for the month of September with Sylvia Jablonski, CEO, CIO and COO, excuse me, co-founder of Defiance ETF. Sylvia, a lot of titles. Great to have you here. (laughs) Good morning, Frank. Great to be here. All right. So give us a sense. What do you think right now? We're seeing the Dow futures move higher on the back of that Salesforce earnings report. What does that tell you about the day ahead? Well, I think, you know, I think I think the day ahead is going to be interesting. We might see some volatility today just because we have, you know, core PCE numbers coming out. So how how the day ends um, matters a little bit in that I think it's going to sort of you know, plant a psychological seed for investors, right? If that number is too hot, then all of a sudden investors are going to worry that, oh, look, the Fed is is unlikely to to just pause, but may hike, and then you get a pullback in equity. So I think a lot has to do with that. And it might be like the NVIDIA story, right? The other day, we had NVIDIA earnings come out. They were just absolutely wonderful, stellar. You expect the market to rally, but then, you know, the Fed talk kind of tempered the gains for that day. So it might be that right. same sort of day where stellar move, Corporate America is holding up. Great news. But let's wait and see what happens with PCE and what that means for the Fed. Right. All right. So PCE coming up later this morning, as we've been saying all morning long, it is the Fed's preferred gauge when it comes to inflation. So with that potential inflection point coming up, what is your WEX word of the day? My WEX word of the day is actually dollar cost average. I think that once you get these opportunities in the market, when you see you know slight pullbacks, but you have this kind of steady ground of the future where we're not going to get into a massive recession, most likely you have so much innovation, um, corporate spending coming up, money on the sidelines going into the market. Stocks can rally for the next you know few years if you dollar cost average in. You, you pick up stocks at a lower price on these days that the market pulls back and it benefits you with your returns in the future. And it's just a smart strategy for the long term, especially for younger investors. All right. So, you know, we're always looking for plays for this day. So, as we mentioned, there's an inflection point potentially coming up with the PCE report. But you're very hot on the travel trade. Why would you put money in that area right now? Yeah, so I think I think travel is, is has done extremely well. If you look at some of the cruise names, for example, they're up 100 percent or more year to date. And that's, of course, over, you know, year over year where you had kind of the, the after effects of COVID playing into the story. But um, spending has gone from goods to services. Americans are out there. Actually, globally, investors are out there traveling. They're, they're spending money on experiences, on hotels, on airlines, on cruise ships. And I think that, you know, they've had that that 
you know, ability to, to have premium prices and things like this. So the companies are benefiting. Earnings seasons and, and remarks from CEOs about forward-looking bookings are also really stellar. So I think business travel's picking up. The spend's going there. It's a good place to look. All right. You, got, you have a bunch of picks for us. You actually have another one in the EV space. So it's ETF EVXX. Uh, it's a play, a pure play when it comes to EV. Shares up about 30 percent year to date. Why would you put money in there right now? And give us a sense of some of the top holdings. Yeah, I absolutely love this story. So I think, you know, when you when you think about trades and, and themes that are going to play out in the next, you know, five to five years or so that are actually going to that trajectory and you have forward looking data proving it, you know, that's EVs. This year there's they're poised to be about eighteen percent of all cars sold globally. That number set to double in the next five to ten years. So the top three holdings um, there are Tesla, Rivian, XPeng. You also have um, Liotto and, and Neo there, but some great stories. You do XPeng, for example, they've had a recent rally because of their partnership with Didi, they're picking up, you know, millions of users there, that smart EV right. technology. They have the Volkswagen partnership. You know, Tesla, we know, sort of owns the worlds of EV charging stations, massive growth on deliveries there. It's the way of the future. Got Government it. incentives are behind it. It's the trade. All right. So just a, just important to note it is a defiance ETF. So you're talking your own book, but you're very bullish on EVs and the travel trade. Sylvia Jablonski, great to have you here as always. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Quick look at futures right now. We're looking at Dow futures up 100 points right now. The S&P up fractionally. Uh, the NASDAQ futures down fractionally as well. We're going to have to leave it there. We're going to toss it over to Squawk Box for much more. Have a great morning. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern.